Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 26, Final Fantasy 7, episode 14. And back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Schatz. Welcome back. Hey, it's good to be back. I'm looking forward to this one. This is a this is one we've been looking forward to since we started, I feel like. Oh, man. Well, it does have what I think is the iconic moment of yeah. the, this game, certainly this disc, and uh, also sets up, I think, sort of the, the uh, to use gamer terminology, ultimate level tragedy that we will see in the future. I guess I won't give too much away now, but I do want to talk a little bit about what the setup can be during that moment. And the moment you're referring to is, of course, the, the moment in the Golden Saucer when you go on the date, and even more specifically, probably the moment when you're on the tram and the fireworks are going off. The firework is a symbol for what a human being living with joy can be, and so it's a great symbol. And you know, you're you're just having this real moment. And if you if what you do in a video game is take the frame of reference of the protagonist and Cloud is the protagonist, then it's sort of like representing falling in love. Mm-hmm. And if you're like a 14 year old who aspires to be you know, a cool person like Cloud who can wield a sword. So I guess there's a metaphor for a thinking person who can work in the world and can earn the love of someone beautiful. Well, that's a very powerful moment. And, and well, what comes just a little bit later too will be made all the more powerful because of the uh, sort of connection or the bonding one might make to the narrative and to the characters within the narrative by sharing that, uh, that emotion. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, go, yeah, go on. The, the date is also the moment when you kind of realize something about yourself too, because there's a few different possibilities for who is going to come into your room and, and, and sort of invite you, uh, onto this, yeah, this tram and the fireworks that you're going to be with. And so it's, um, it's kind of a revelation of, of the sort of person that you have been in the course of the game so far. Uh, either you're going to go with Eris or you're going to go with Tifa or even, I've never had this happen, but apparently you can go with Barrett also. So if you play your cards right. I've heard the same. Yeah, well, so that that just brings up a couple things that I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about how Red 13, as number 13, could be one of the black-caped men who is doomed to go crazy, and in what way that relates to Cloud and the, the work we read by Professor Gast in Gast Library in the Shinra Mansion, or was in the Shinra Building, excuse me, the Shinra Building, yes. Uh, no, but we did, I think, get that information from uh, the basement that uh, Sephiroth did his reading in, uh, of the Shinra Mansion. Yeah, just to make a long point long. And, um, but I also wanted to consider, um, well, besides, besides Kate Seth and uh, the importance of gatherings, I, it's been so long since we've done this, or, or, or we never get to do this anymore, which I thought was so powerful, like the fire moment, um, and what that means. But, um, well, what is it that, um, so you went with Tifa, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And I I went with Aries. And the specific information I got from mine was she was searching for me. She was telling me that I was just like Zach, but that there was something different. We looked alike. We gestured alike. We sort of talked alike, but, but I'm different. She says, I'm searching for you, Cloud. And he says, but I'm right here. And then she says, yeah, but I'm searching for dot, 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 ellipsis, you. And so some indication that there's some falsity to him, that there's, there's uh, he's putting on a front, but there is something beneath that front that we have yet to see. Um, some, and so that, that's sort of what comes out in in that relationship and then she sort of hints at wanting to go steady with him and very sadly sort of suggested next time they should come here and they should spend more time together which is such a sweet image yeah that's really interesting because tifa's is a little different she 
she suggests that they she's she's sort of playing it cool the whole time and she refers to them as old friends and talks about how it's sort of difficult um to be old friends and then to and then she sort of trails off a lot of hers is sort of being shy and being coy and not quite coming to the point um she uh, you know comes into your room and invites you out but then uh, um, on the tram, she says that she's going to go ahead and say something, and then there's the dot, 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 and then she never says it. But one other thing that I found really interesting about it was that she um, says that she thinks it would have been easy for Eris. And so, like you're saying, uh, in Eris's case, she goes ahead and says that she wants to go out with you, she wants to be uh, a serious relationship or, or something like that. And for Tifa, it's on the, on the one hand much harder, but on the other hand, she can sort of envision that it could be easier if only she were more like Aries. And so it seems like this other character is very much on her mind as no doubt it's on the player's mind too. And I guess it's sort of an open question whether it's on Cloud's mind. He's, you're sort of invited to respond with him however you choose. And the main place that that's dramatized is in the, um, the play where you get to play the, uh, the, the knight saving yes. the damsel in distress from the evil dragon king, right? And so you, 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 know, you have choices up to this point in the game that determine who you're going to be on the date with. And then even within the date, you have choices about what you're going to what you're going to do what how, how you're going to act whether you want to um play you know sort of play play dumb play coy um or whether you want to play the role you know sort of literally within the, the play within the play of the of the hero and it's really obvious which one's which i i went ahead and tried to you know do the play correctly um, but I think it probably, there's some funny dialogue, I'm sure, if you mess up, you know, and do the wrong thing. Um, and then, you know, if you do everything during the play, then uh, Cloud and his paramour, whoever she is or he is, uh, I think he kisses her, at least her hand. Yeah. And you have the option to kiss. And, uh, and then everyone sort of just like dances off stage because the power of true love has vanquished the evil Dragon King. Um, you know, it's comical in a way, but it's also sort of like, yeah, especially when you know the the full story of it, it's, there, there's something very, uh, very moving about it. Does Tifa, so there's something very special about how Ares does this. And so it, Tifa is, is right to compare herself to Ares as, as if Ares is sort of a feminine ideal, like a figure of the anima, as the unions would say, also conflated with the sort of idea of the great mother, right? Because she is an ancient and thus partakes of ancient maternal powers like being able to listen to the earth, which we talked about as a feminine symbol in our uh, night school uh, lectures. And so she's, she is this sort of ideal super figure, right? She's like a superhero, sort of, or a famous person. She's, she has a sheen on her. She's also a gardener, uh, and she can make things grow in place. She's literally magical. <laughs> and uh, comes from a race that makes her totally unique, and so she's ultimately special. And, and also happens to be very feminine and kind and wonderful at that. And so Tifa, she just doesn't quite fit the mold. She's, you know, like a tomboy. She's athletic, she's a fighter, she fights with her fists. And it's funny that she, she seems to have acquired this ability to fight with her fists precisely because she's so shy, right? Um, so that she can stand up for herself and have the courage to sort of go after what she wants. And yet still, for all her martial arts training, eh, she does ask Cloud out in your case, but she doesn't quite uh, get to the, the punch or lay, lay it out in the way that she wants to um, in the most effective, maybe most straightforward way. Um, and so I... It, that does make me wonder to what extent, because we brought this question up much earlier on the podcast, um, Aries is sort of a figure of the ideal feminine. 
or the idealized feminine. And uh, Tifa is more like a real person. And to what it's, and I also just wonder, just to add another caveat, whether that's sort of like a traditional idea of the feminine as opposed to say a more contemporary uh, or developing ideal uh, within the modern world in the modern sort of workspace. Yeah, because yeah, Tifa has been a a friend of Cloud's since they were, I guess, you know, growing up. Uh, which, as she says, makes it makes it more difficult in a way to then transition to a more romantic relationship. And that, you know, seems just to be the case, right? If you if you sort of know the kind of story that you're in, and then you're suddenly trying to change the narrative and change your role within that story, then there's a there's a kind of uh, obstacle there to 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 get over, and ultimately she um, she does recur in her mind at least to Eris as a kind of ideal for what she's trying to be, and perhaps you know Cloud is thinking about that, or perhaps Cloud is totally oblivious. You know, it's sort of like that's up to the player to to think about because we don't really see much of what um, Cloud is actually thinking. It's it's sort of the player's decisions that have led up to this point. And I'm I'm really curious too about um, the way that it's not just a, a binary, you know, because you can you can go on the date with Eris, you can go on the date with Tifa, uh, but you can also go on the date with Barrett. And I guess Maybe in some of the new versions, it sounds like Yuffie also is a is an option. I don't remember that from um, from the PS One days, but I guess there's like a re-release of the game where you can go on the date with with Yuffie too. And it's kind of interesting that he, you know, he is kind of maternal in a lot of ways um, because he's he's taking care of uh, his friend, his best friend's uh, daughter this whole time. Uh, he's cared for her and looked out for her. He's very closely associated with the earth, right? As, as trying to, to save uh, the energy of Materia and Mako from Shinra who are extracting it. Um, he's also, you know, physically uh, very sort of like stout and stocky and, um, you know, motherly in that regard too. Like he's got this, uh, this body type, which is which in which envelops you, um, rather than being uh, classically, I guess, like chiseled and masculine, uh, he he's like kind of a big teddy bear. Um, so, yeah, I I like that. There's there's that that option, which maybe the player has to sort of go out of their way to accomplish, but that's there to 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 make it, you know not simply a uh, a love triangle but this this more open-ended sort of thing um that that strikes me as very modern or postmodern or whatever you you want to say you know so it's like you you have this image for the the classic storyline of the um feminine archetype you have this image of the tomboy the girl next door uh and then you have this other thing uh which is a guy who's um, living a life that he never expected, but is, you know, just like doing his best to get by. Uh, and he's, I guess, the closest thing Cloud has to a friend at this point. And you can go watch fireworks with him too. And that's, that's really cute. I like that. Hmm. Okay. Well, and with the good and the deep and the meaningful and the, the moving in the positive way, we then get an immediate shock, another masterful turn as the Aristotelian uh, or, or those who read Aristotle's poetics know is considered uh, a major aspect of tragedy. We, one of our own, an odd one of our own, who we first met here, who's been hooking us up, who gets us into this ghost hotel. And I was wondering, why is it a ghost hotel, Wes? And, um, and, uh, and he betrays, he totally turns on us and tells us that he works for Shinra and that he gives away 
the keystone that we had to sort of work hard for. So we met Dio again and had to do uh, the battle uh, arena. And I'd love to ask about how you did there. And, uh, but, um, but he, uh, and then he sort of blackmails us into staying on the team. So we get silence. We don't even get the, uh, the ability to shun him or to fight him off. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I was thinking about the ghost hotel, uh, I guess as a kind of attraction. And it's interesting that fear and jump scares and things like that are an attraction to people. Um, it's really used pretty much only so that the characters have a place to stay while they're at Gold Saucer. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of like the game forces you to explore Gold Saucer, especially at this point um, where you're chasing Kate Sith through all the different, uh, different, you know, pods or, or whatever, those leaves on, on the tree. Um, but it was the same way when you were looking for Barrett back when you thought he was the gunman who was shooting people back when you first were there. So it's like the game is determined to make you explore Gold Saucer, um, venture through the different areas, the, the different squares as they're called, right? Uh, maybe that's a pun on the developer's name. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, when you do find Kate Sith and he uh, pulls that card of uh, blackmail, that is, it's a weird betrayal too, because in a way he, he did the same thing when he first met him, right? He sort of forced himself into your company. Um, and it just, it just kind of reinforced forces, I guess, his uh, character or its character, right, uh, as this kind of force of, of strangeness, of, of something that's not quite um, rational or uh, doesn't have the same kind of uh, story and, and follow the same kind of patterns as the rest of the, the crew. Uh, I did also notice that and I found it kind of funny that your newest team member, Sid, uh, as you're trying to like hash out the story so far in the, in the lobby of <laughs> the ghost hotel is like sleeping in the corner. He sort of nods off uh, and is just like totally indifferent to the whole storyline. And I, I feel like that too is representative of a certain way of playing this game. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting too, that Barrett was the one who, didn't understand how the story, what the under, what the story meant, but cared mostly for uh, what it meant for action, for what to do next, what to proceed to next. And just because he speaks with sort of a dialect, yeah, I make a connection between him and Hagrid and Harry Potter. And the fact that Her Hagrid is right next to the Forbidden Forest and is the gamekeeper and is uh, the farthest removed from the citadel of the city sort of means that he's the, like the more primitive man or the man who, uh, and given his large size and his half-troll heritage, I think that's a very fair characterization of him. Um, and he's even undereducated, um, though not totally due to his own fault, uh, though he was breaking the rules. But, so he's like Harry in that way. But in any case, he, um, he like uh, Barrett, it seems like they're, they're the Aristotelian uh, two modes of being, the practical man as opposed to the man of like, thinking or, or, or speculation as like the one who abstractly thinks because like it's, it's never Hagrid who just wants to sit around and think about things. He, he wants to go hang out with a uh, dragon or with Buckbeak though, though he does enjoy tea uh, though. It's not very good when he makes it. Um, and it's the same with Barrett as well. Um, he's like you said of the earth. He, uh, he is like the salt of the earth. And that he he doesn't he doesn't really care care for the finer points of the story, but for just getting through it because it's or how do I put it? I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to pause like that, but just um, for just playing to play. And I want and I think you posed that question like or or suggested that those are two ways of playing, and I do find myself sort of uh, vacillating between those like playing while uh, sort of really uh, getting into the details of the game and then other times just 
kind of playing through things and scrolling through text. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I realized I didn't answer your question about the battle arena and I, for, I just kind of forgot it. Um, and that's another example, right? You, it doesn't really matter how far you get in it. Apparently it's purely for Dio's entertainment, right? He just wants to see what you've got um, before he uh, agrees to loan you the keystone. And, you know, so he's a strange character, for one thing. Um, his interest in you as a battler is strange, but it goes to that same question about, I think, similar at least, about the, uh, what the ghost hotel's doing there, right? That's a place of fear as an attraction, and the battle arena, like the Coliseum or whatever, uh, is the place of, of violence as an attraction of, of rage and uh, uh, pain and suffering. And there's something to that, right? Uh, for, for a powerful person, especially, who has sort of gone around the world and gathered all these rare items in his, in his museum, he's seeking different sorts of stimulation at this point, and he wants to see you uh, fight in the battle arena for whatever reason. And weirdly enough, right, the character uh, uh, Cloud is singled out for that. It's it's like the um, the date in a way. Uh, it's kind of like a reverse date, though, right? Because you're battling these random enemies and seeing how far you can get in that respect. Uh, and I I think I made it through a few rounds. And the way that the the battle arena works, right, is that each after each round you have some kind of status or equipment um, effect that comes into play. There's like a a slot uh, machine thing going and you you get a random more or less um, effect on your character and so at a certain point I think I got my HP halved like three or four you know like to to a quarter of what it should have been oh, uh, and weirdly enough the enemies at that point were doing a lot less damage but I still couldn't like heal quickly enough I think I should have probably used some of my potions and stuff instead of trying to use um, materia because I guess I don't know if it does something like with a percentage it was really weird like that was really tripping me out actually was how little damage they were doing to me even though I had such little health um, but uh, yeah I got I got defeated at that point after a few rounds and so I didn't manage to win whatever uh, accessory uh, the the victory and that would give you I know that you know later in the game you got to come back and play the battle arena to win points to get some really really crucial items um and just like for the challenge of it of course you know side quests and all uh but at this point yeah it's it's sort of just for fun um it's a kind of uh interruption into this like you know super important quest uh just to sort of check in and see where you stack up within the uh the professional fighters i guess who uh come and entertain Dio who's who's like you know his name is God right he's above it all he's sort of just observes at this point yeah he's the king of a golden mushroom tree in a desert uh <laughs> who's looking for the next big thing yeah he is certainly a figure of the divine you're you're right and it's interesting to think of all the attractions of the golden saucer as sort of like what this game is itself and like trying to activate those yak pangsep primary motivational forces because like in the chocobo racing again that's striving for dominance to be the first to be the fastest and to gamble too right to risk risk uh uh to have that uh, element of risk added to uh that striving i mean i mean it's intoxicating right people get addicted to it all the time one of our favorite authors you know, Fyodor Dostoevsky was very much addicted to that sort of thing. And then the the game room, the video game room, where you, you again are like sort of, I just, I know there are the games within Final Fantasy VII, like the ski game and such, but uh, it makes me think of being a kid and in an arcade and the sorts of games that were very popular when we were kids were, I think the most popular ones were like Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat at the arcade. And those are functionally like, uh, masculinized figures fighting for dominance, going literally up a dominance hierarchy 
in order to get to the top. And right, right. Yeah. And this is something you see to go to literature here. Uh, do you remember in the Confessions of Augustine when his friend Olypius? Uh, Olypius, there's an, yeah. so he he's very um, chaste and he wants to be good, and his friends are all very rowdy and they're like, "Come to the uh, Colosseum with us, you know, watch this show." And Olypius, you know, doesn't want to go, but eventually he goes. And he's like, he resolves to just not open his eyes. He's just not going to look at it. But he hears the crowd like roar and he can't help it. His eyes open and he sees the, the combat and he's just, uh, he becomes, you know, totally uh, lost uh, to it. And, and Augustine, um, he, he has a similar experience, right, with the, the very iconic uh, garden where he steals the pear, right? Because he knows it's wrong and his friends want to. And that's, you know, anyway, so there's something to that, right? I, I think it was a big part of it as kids. There's something to it being, being forbidden. You know, it's bad. Uh, you know, you're not supposed to um, play these kinds of games. They're violent. They're, they're crude. The humor, the um, everything about them. But but that's so fun, you know? It's just like, you could never, you could never do that in real life, but you sort of get that outlet uh, there, which, which is crucial um, because you have all this energy, you know? And you're just like sitting in school all day and whatever, you have to just like be good. Uh, but, but when you're with your friends and you're playing games, you get to say and do whatever you want. And that's, again, sort of godlike, right? To be, um, to be uh, above, consequences or, or sort of do things which have no real practical consequence other than of course you know wasting your time and possibly corrupting your soul I guess it's all it's all in fun um I, I I love the uh the way that Kate Sith here also sort of appeals to your your friendship first right he's like let's just be friends like let's pretend this didn't happen and then obviously you're, you're like well that's not okay you, you you've crossed a boundary and then he goes ahead and shows you that he has kidnapped Marlene right so he it's weird like he wants to be your friend but he's not um limited to that as a as a persuasive uh gambit you know he'll he'll go ahead and just cross that line way over it um to get what he wants well and it's interesting yeah it's interesting too to what extent the game is pretend then breaks its own rule. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah, because we'll accept a, a mog with a cat on top of it that uses a horn as a weapon into our, that forces itself into our party as if we couldn't stop it at all. But the second that thing kidnaps the fictional daughter of our dialect-speaking man-of-the-earth Barrett, then he's crossed a line that makes it so that we as the player can no longer within the frame of reference of cloud, accept this guy as friend. And yet he's still trying to play pretend that he can be our friend, but he, there, there seem to be even rules to pretend games or if games are pretend, they still have, there are rules that they must, that must be followed in order to continue to play the game in the way that you have been playing it. Right, right. He also, I, I find this really strange, I guess, because it seems sort of um, unnecessary to the plot, right? Like he could betray you once you're already there, right? Why, why would it matter? Um, and it seems like a way to sort of quickly and uh, succinctly give you Kate Sith's backstory uh, because he's kind of been left out. He's just like this extraneous character who appears and does so sort of pointless, right? Um, and to very quickly give him a, a kind of uh, gravitas because he's the sort of person who apparently will threaten uh, total innocence, you know, and, and sort of bring that, that thematic uh, element back into the story here. And his uh, his identity remains a mystery, though, which I, I found kind of interesting because I, I I never remember like at what point you finally realize 
uh, who is pulling the strings there. Um, at this point, you can kind of narrow it down, I guess, to somebody within Shinra. Uh, but you, you still don't, he doesn't, he doesn't want you to know at this point who he is. Um, so in a way, he's, you know, very much like all the other characters whose stories we've seen played out where we, we sort of understand who they are through their, um, their history and their backstory. Um, it's, it's interesting too. He, he sort of is a figure of the player then too, because he's a, he's a step removed from everybody else. He doesn't have as much at stake, not even this real body, just like you. And because of that, he can play the game in a crueler way than he might otherwise do it if he, if he had more skin in the game, as it were. And so he has no problem uh, kidnapping uh, Marlene. And it wasn't Ares's, uh Sorry, was I on mute there? No, no, I heard you. Yeah, you were saying oh. Aries' um, stepmother or whatever. Yeah, and what was it? Her as well. I know Aries mentions that, but um, but uh, right. so because Kate Sith, and also he he sort of adds in that that cruel little remark that Shinra's already been to the uh, the the temple of the ancients or uh, he up where you're going, and he's already given them the keystone, and so it's like you guys are so behind, and then he's like well, let's get going then. And I sort of didn't yeah. understand that comment. It's as if he's like, he is literally a troll, right? And, <laughs> and, and so it's like, he's trolling you for being so dumb and for trusting him. And he forced himself on your, your team. And, and he's, he's really cruel. And he's got this sort of, sort of vague and poorly defined backstory that's not even a real backstory. And then he's sort of uh, unnecessarily sort of snippy with you as well. And he's sort of like the figure of the fool in that way, I think, in that he's like, he acts very like sort of saccharine and funny and like things are good all the time. But then on the other end of it, he, he's sort of resentful and mean in how he acts because he doesn't balance those ways of being into sort of a, a unified personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, I think he does form a kind of parallel for the player there. Yeah, because he's, he's this avatar, which is being controlled remotely from somewhere else. Um, he also uh, points out that you are operating without um, monetary compensation, right? You, yes. You're doing things altruistically, is his perspective, at least. Um, whereas he is an employee of this huge corporation, right? He's operating as a mercenary. And that's how you started out, Cloud that is, started out as a mercenary, but seems to have kind of blended his, um, his operations with this, this crew of uh, friends at this point, right? And it seems like that's what Kate Sith really would like, uh, but just can't quite manage it. And so he has to sort of bully and cajole uh, and and give you these like very overt uh, directions about where to go next in the game um, and why he yeah he's uh, a strange kind of intervention on the part of the the developers but also a kind of parallel for the uh, the person playing the game uh, and- which is troubling and the yeah. golden saucer itself and how the golden saucer itself represents the game like the golden world of the mushroom imagination the world of mario the world of video games where people <laughs> go to escape reality or to understand it in a deeper way depending on how they approach it and so uh, and so kate sith you first met in the golden saucer and now you see him turn on you in the golden saucer. And so in some way he is like the, the hybrid chimerical spirit of the golden saucer and of what a video game is. Is it something that is uh, going to give you the, is it like the, the two masks on the top of the theater that going to give you the high joys and the low, the, the low sort of traumas and hits? Is it, is it itself, like you're suggesting, sort of now the more abstract uh, Colosseum? Is it a low pleasure or is it a high pleasure? Um, is it vulgar, uh, like you were suggesting, that which, uh, like stealing the pear, has the element of the forbidden in it? Um, I, I suppose even Dio, as a figure of like a bodybuilder, 
the large half as a large half naked man is sort of a representative of that or of a primordial man in that way. Um, hmm. I'm sorry. I'm just like, yeah, getting to the speculative limit on that one. Yeah, no, I, I like the, the way that the game pushes you in that respect, because what's it pushing you towards, right? It's, it's to the temple of the ancients. You are motivated by these weird, you know, sort of base or animal desires like fear and rage, uh, competition by, by love or perhaps lust, whatever it, it might be on the date, or um, you're sort of like trying to understand your role within the story. And the game is telling you very clearly what you need to do next is go to this place, which is, you know, essentially holy. It's the temple. It's uh, the thing which is so far back in history that you can only connect with it by this kind of miracle that there's this one person who is an ancient, who, who has that, who has that um, ability to, uh, to communicate with the planet, right? And so it's like all these base or uh, low desires and motivations are driving you towards those which are, are totally transcendent, right? Yes. And I think the deeper betrayal is what happens once you get there. Like, this is something so unprecedented uh, that fanboys to this day are, are weeping over it, right? So yes. uh, it's, it's huge. It's, it's colossal. Yeah, so I like that you noticed that intuitive connection because I think we made a similar one last time to uh, what preceded the Golden Saucer and then what came after it because I think it was Nibbleheim that came before or Nibble at that point. Right? It was like a time of great seriousness and sadness, but also self-delusion. Um, and now in this case, we have this sort of uh, seemingly superficial place that actually access, accesses deep primordial emotions, which I suppose one could call primitive, but they're, they're in charge insofar as uh, the hypothalamus is in charge of sending up you know, food signals and the like when one is hungry. Um, and you get fantasies about that. Um, but um, then going to the Temple of the Ancients afterwards, so like going from the most vulgar place to the holiest place as an intuitive jump, setting sort of a range of experiences, suggesting that perhaps this game is like an epic, a mix of both low and high pleasures, a sort of a simulacrum of reality in that, in that respect, that it, it lets the gamer, like you were suggesting earlier, choose how he uh, or she approaches the game and with, with what level of seriousness. But it, it does seem to be the case that when you are going to the Temple of the Ancients, just like when you're going to like the Temple of Light in Zelda, things are getting serious. You now understand that the game is guiding you towards uh, a moment of great gravitas, that, you, that maybe even this golden saucer was like the eye of the storm. And it will, at some point, serve as the sort of eye of the storm, right? When you do all the chocobo racing, you'll spend some time there if you want to get that golden chocobo and get uh, the ultimate summon, Knights of the Round, especially if you want to defeat the ultimate challenges, the weapons, uh, ruby and emerald. Uh, and so, and so, yeah, 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 yeah. So, that's... I, yeah, the, yeah, the way that the, uh, the fireworks play overhead and the way that you're the you know the hundredth uh couple and everything tonight is free you know because the the tram is broken i guess they need to kind of keep the customers happy like all these sort of serendipitous things start piling up there um in a way that it, it strikes me that you know even within the most uh simple or you know vulgar or whatever of of pleasures and entertainments you can you can find these transcendent sorts of moments it's it seems like that is also something that the game is hinting at there uh and to what extent cloud realizes that or to what extent the player realizes that is sort of beside the point because you know you can you can see it that way you can i think interpret it that way and and find some evidence for that uh and and it really enriches your experience if you can go about your daily life in a way that you see a kind of meaning behind the everyday things, suddenly that's a lot more interesting. That's a lot more fun. That's a game that's worth playing um, all of a sudden and worth 
you know, playing the right way. Well, then it's so. like surfing, right? Then you're always balancing on the edge of good and evil. No matter yeah. what you're doing, you're striving towards excellence or you're not. And, um, and so, you know, whatever sub or mini game you happen to be doing, whatever micro routine or routine you are enacting within the world, are you doing it well? Are you doing it not, you know? Um, and, you know, in what way is a side quest different from a quest? You're always developing your habits and manifesting yourself within the world, regardless of, uh, and regardless of the frame of reference and the specific activities of a place, you can be behaving as well as possible to get the best result possible in that place. You just plug that framework into where the behavior that you need in a place. And well, some places require skill, right? Like a, like a professional baseball stadium in order to be on, on the field. But, um, well, it seems as if the game invites you to do that in the game or, or not if you want to as well. Like you can make a farce of yourself in the game if you would like to. And, and, uh, well, you know, in that way, I do think it is a good simulacrum for the, the world. Yeah, you don't have to come back and race chocobos and uh, rack up battle points and stuff like that. You you can totally proceed without that and have a fine time. Uh, but it's there, you know. It's like there's always another challenge. There's always another, uh, especially nowadays with the the re-releases and all of the different like speed runs. You know, people play games as fast as possible, get through it like find different ways to challenge yourself you ways to to um to mix it up and change the game and that's sort of the uh i think that's sort of what we're doing here too in, in our own way right it's like finding a new way to explore and understand uh this this uh work of, of art it's i find really engaging really fun so well you know and it's like with a wine connoisseur eventually the pleasure goes from simply sensual at first and like sort of the Dionysian intoxicating effect of it to more cerebral and that you, you, you like more sorts of wines. And so you observe the differences between these wines. And so what you, you appreciate about them are the categorical differences. Like you observe this and this difference about this and the difference in this and this effect. So it's not simply sensual, but uh, part of the pleasure will be finding how each of them differ from each other. And so, so sort of like we've been talking about, the experience itself is not what, is, uh, what determines the value of what you get out of the experience. Because if you sort of use it appropriately, or, or you, can, you can take as little from your experiences as you want, right? You can just have the first glass of wine if you want. And that's it. Or you can sort of sort of drink them all and see all the quality and then see sort of the, the big picture as well. You can extract massive amounts of information from an experience uh, as you make it more cerebral. And as you start to, like we were talking about with the poem yesterday with Whitman, as you bring your mind to bear on the experience and extract the gold from it, like a, a gold miner was the image we saw yesterday. And it's like, right. what makes an experience vulgar or not vulgar is the mind that is extracting the information within it. And that's why like say a Socrates or like an Augustine using a, a sort of, or a Whitman using so, sort of like a vulgar, vulgar meaning common image like stealing a pear or, or talking about a gadfly or something in that you can see the eternal struggle between good and evil or, or, or the eternal need for the intellect to restructure the state. And that uh, uh, within those images is the entire symbolic existence of mankind. <laughs> right, all that in a glass of wine, go figure. Yes. I like it. Yeah, right, exactly, because I mean, those are particles of information that we produce within the world that have an effect and that there, there are different ways to enjoy them. You see people do that. And it's like, I think we are now suggesting that uh, a sophisticated way to be literary is to be 
conscious of the differing modes of artistic representation we have and how they convey the essential stories of, of the most recent generation, which is not a purely Western generation. You know, this Final Fantasy VII we all played, it's a Japanese game. And uh, there's something to be said for that. There's something, there's something to be contended with there. There's a globalism there in, in the sort of, one of the sort of founding stories of our generation. And I think we're trying to pick at that and understand that. And, um, you know, it's interesting because the Philip K. Dick work, uh, The Man in the High Castle is coming out, has recently been coming out on uh, Netflix, which explores the notion of what if we had lost World War II and the Japanese and the Germans sort of took over the world after that. And that strikes me as sort of a negative representation of sort of uh, a new globalism. And I... I know we've talked about sort of a world mythology and what a world mythology might look like, but it is very interesting to wonder to what extent we are already sort of embodying a world mythology. We just need to figure out the representation of it um, and articulate what it means. Oh yeah. I, that's, that's a really, yeah, the counterfactual or the alternative history is a fun way. And again, something that you can get, through art, through games, and um, through fiction. Uh, and I think that that's a, a big part of what draws me to Final Fantasy VII. Uh, so we didn't talk about it, but you have the option of going to Wu Tai first. It's a kind of a optional uh, thing totally, and the point at which in the game you do it is also up to you. Um, I think if you wait too long, you you can't actually access it though. Um, so at some point we'll have to revisit that. Uh, but we're gonna go next time to the the Temple of the Ancients, right? So I think that that goes pretty to the pretty deeply into the uh, the claims right about this game as as having something to say mythologically, um, possibly religiously, you know, temple after all, and uh, certainly the way that the cultures which are creating and experiencing the game affect the, uh, the message that it conveys. I think all of that, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to this, um, this coming episode about the, the Temple of the Ancients. And it is interesting to what extent the game just recognizes the architecture of a city, which is a simplified representation of what's important to humans, right? Like we do literally have temples in cities and cities only have the things essentially that can sustain themselves and thus produce things that we need. And so where is it that you go to have a very important thing happen? Well, where's more important than a temple? Um, what, what, could, what sort of place could you even think of? The, the idea itself suggests holy. And what is more profound than that which is holy? And then, and that I think is actually literally going to be the lesson that we learn from the materia that we, we acquire or see there, right? It's, um, it's almost as if it's su suggesting the idea of the holy is the holiest thing that exists. And the idea of the holy is the connection that humans have with each other based on consciousness, which creates the capacity for ultimate trust, which actually makes them literally and figuratively rich. Francis Fukuyama suggests that in his work, Trust, and Dr. Jordan B. Peterson does too. With trust as a commodity in an economy, you can actually make a lot more money because you can make you know, uh, lots of good loans to people that they then pay back in order to produce more goods and thus more jobs and, and blah, 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 blah. We don't need an economics lesson. In any case, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, yeah, that's, that is stuff that we definitely want to get into uh and i think we should uh push on that a little bit because the the way that it's portrayed right is that the the holy thing is is fragile and is um is fallible uh it's it's a it's basically lost right it's um uh, essentially dep you're deprived of it there and, and think, what, what's yeah. that about I think that ties very strongly to what you said earlier about betrayal and that that is why that is the ultimate story. That will be the ultimate part of this 
disc one's sub-narrative. And I think we'll set the sort of cesarean force for the remainder of this work. I, it, it'll be interesting to consider whether it's more of a cesarean uh, ultimate betrayal or a Christ-like one, secular or sacred. But, but, it, but trust is necessary in both ways, it seems. And, you know, whether it's Lucifer falling or Prometheus stealing from Zeus and thus paying the price with a vulture eating his liver or for bringing fire or consciousness to man, the capacity to speak to each other um, and forge connections with each other through words. Um, um, sorry, I'm losing my point thinking about Prometheus there, uh, Wes. Um, oh, sorry, about betrayal. Because, and so it seems as if betrayal is the ultimate story and the first story of mankind too. Cain and Abel, the very first men who were born outside of Eden, betray. Uh, Cain betrays Abel by killing him. It seems as if like what you're saying about trust being so fragile, then of course betrayal would be the ultimate evil for man because it is so easy to betray someone else's trust, especially if they trust you a lot or have a high standard for you as say, say a friend. And so, um, it's interesting. There's just the story of the Buddha that I think I've shared with you, but I don't know if on this podcast specifically before seems to say the exact same thing, right? It's he was, he was on the road between cities once and the killer, uh, ran into him and said, okay, one last request before I kill you. And the Buddha said, okay, go cut that branch off a tree. And the killer goes to do it, brings the branch over to the Buddha and the Buddha says, okay, well now reattach it. And the man was enlightened. Again, that strikes me as a story from the East about, well, trust is an easy thing to sort of have at first, but a very hard thing to reclaim after it's been severed or betrayed. Um, and that's like sort of the story of man. And, <laughs> well. Uh, yeah. Right on. Yeah, right on indeed. So it's funny what changes and what doesn't change over time and across space or across space and time. I guess we're going to keep looking for what that happens to be. Yeah. All right. All right. I, uh, I, I think we can play that far. I, it's kind of a longer uh, thing, but we'll try to get to the end of the Temple of the Ancients for next time then. All right. All right. Looking forward to okay. it. All right. Good night. Good night.